Welcome to the Crimson Education Podcast, where each week we bring together top experts in their field from around the world to talk about the topics that matter to you, from artificial intelligence to the future of higher education. Crimson is the world leader in global admissions consulting, helping students everywhere get into the universities of their dreams. To learn more and to apply for a free education assessment with one of our academic experts, visit crimsoneducation.org. And if you have questions for our guests, recommendations for topics, and more, email podcast at crimsoneducation.org. Crimson Education. Reimagine what's possible. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Crimson Podcast channel. My name is David Fried, and I'm here in San Francisco with Jamie Beaton. Jamie, how are you doing today? I'm pumped. We're excited to be here, David. Great. So for those of you who don't know, Jamie is not only a good friend of mine and a former classmate, but CEO of Crimson Education. Jamie, what we're going to be talking about today is whether colleges are looking at the right things or the wrong things when it comes to admission. Obviously, given the news around Harvard and all the lawsuits, this is something that everyone has their eye on. Are colleges undervaluing test scores? Are they overvaluing things we can't measure, like extracurriculars? So first, to start out, I want to hear more about your own experience. You applied to 25 schools, including the top ones in the UK and the US. What do you think made you stand out? What was the center of your application's decision? So I think there are a couple of things that uh, helped me stand out in the college admissions landscape. The first thing um, is something you probably don't want to hear, but it's just the reality. And basically, most kids from my high school were doing three or four A-levels. I did 10 A-levels, which immediately is very distinguishing in the eyes of these schools because it sounds so ridiculous. I think basically with the US, you've got to remember, these admissions officers spend about a minute reading your profile the first time. Things are going to stand out about your profile, and that's going to be what they you know, remember you by. So in my case, just the academic load that I had was quite differentiated for Kiwis at the time. The second thing was my leadership. Um, I had run this nationwide campaign on um, basically anti, anti-drugs and anti-alcohol following a number of students actually pass away from my school. It was a really intense uh, sort of cultural phenomenon in New Zealand. We've got a pretty bad drinking culture. And the kind of uh, massive project that I ran on um, was also quite differentiated. And I know a lot of my references actually talk to this campaign that I'd run. Um, you know, I had wrote a lot of media articles in the National Herald. I'd gotten a lot of youth from various schools involved in this initiative to try and improve the culture. And so I think the combination of basically that deep um, leadership project alongside basically a super intense academic schedule that seemed kind of totally out of the ordinary probably made me quite interesting to many of the schools. Now, they would be two kind of big hooks that really got people's eyes popping, um, so to speak. But um, I also had a broad array of kind of, you know, nice extracurriculars that were pretty holistic. Everything from being a theatre club youth ambassador to a, you know, math and physics Olympiad competitor, you know, to a, a national debater. So I had a lot of different activities going on. So I, I had a pretty all-rounded profile. The final thing that I would say is um, I actually had a good balance between STEM and the humanities fields. So English was kind of my main subject, actually, uh, that I was very strong at, um, but I also did all the sciences, biology, chemistry, physics, etc. And I think typically the candidates applying, at least from New Zealand, and now I can say, having seen all these kids around the world, worldwide, is people typically don't have a strength in both areas. And so the candidates that are quite well-rounded are pretty attractive to these liberal arts colleges. So that's a couple of the kind of quick ones. Um, now, you know, you're a very humble guy, but uh, you also, you know, from my understanding, were the first uh, person in your school in many, many years um, to get into Harvard. So, um, you know, you also crushed the admissions game and actually did so in the US where it's a much more mature competitive space. So how did you stand out when you went through this journey? Sure. So I think for me, kind of like for you, I was really focused on telling my story. And I know you and I, 
you know, we do admissions consulting for a living. We talk to a lot of students about what story you're telling. And so for me, I think the story was one of being well-rounded. I, like you, did very well in science and math, but my passion was English. I liked writing more than anything, spent a ton of time in my essays, and had, when I was growing up, written a series of novels for National Novel Writing Month. And a big part of my application was saying, look, I can do both things. I'm flexible. My goal in college is really to be academically curious. Given my double professor parent background, I think that was something I stressed was intellectual curiosity, real passion for learning, passion for doing different things in high school. As far as the hooks, um, for me, I think one of the big hooks was just leadership in my school, leading Mall UN, leading our local community service organization, leading our newspaper, things that a lot of other people had done. Um, and so I think what set me apart was really telling the story together. So for you, I'm just curious, kind of, what did you do with, what do you do with your current students and helping them make sure they have a story? Because I always think about it as, you know, as you said, they're going to have one minute to read your application. And if your story is confusing, then they're not going to know what to do with it. So it's really important that you get through and you say, okay, I'm David, I'm from Texas. Um, I have a really strong passion for academics and intellectual curiosity. I also am someone who cares deeply about understanding education, and I'm someone that, you know, will be a good asset to your school. How do you kind of craft a story that has those key themes for students? So let me give you a very concrete example. Um, last night, in the early hours of the morning, San Francisco time, I was working with one of my lovely students in Shanghai. Now, this student is a bit of a STEM prodigy. He's doing math Olympiad, he's doing physics, you know, also does violin and piano, right? So he's hitting probably the most common buckets you see out of some of these really competitive countries and communities. But um, when I'm talking to him about his applications, what I really try to do is find what that sort of secret source was. And it was hard to find. Initially, um, you know, uh, he was mentioning how he loved these subjects and there wasn't much else going on. However, it was sort of in the, in the 11th hour, so to speak, of our consulting that he told me he loved motorsports. And one thing that really got him excited was the idea that in, in China, motorsports is in its infancy. But there are so many kids that love STEM, they love physics, they love engineering. And motorsports is such an um, you know, amazing thing to watch. It combines engineering talent with business, with strategy, with such a high stakes adrenaline area. So the story I wanted to tell about the student was that of the you know, motorsports fanatic who basically is trying to ride this wave and make motorsport into this big sport throughout his country in China and spread that passion as a way to ignite real intrinsic interest in the sciences in that field. So that's a very good example of how, you know, the student could talk about why they love math or physics. And to be honest, you know, that's said all the time. But rather we focus on this interesting niche, motorsports. Now, going back to my own story, right? Um, you so know, how does motorsports come out in an application, right? Like, like he presumably, you know, he doesn't have any ability to do motorsports locally or anything like that. So how do you make sure that colleges know that he cares about motorsports and in a way that doesn't seem superficial, in a way that doesn't say, you know, I like sports and I just drop the Boston Red Sox randomly in my application <laughs> or something like that? Yeah, so I think there are many different ways to do this. So the first thing is the application essays, right? Um, there's many opportunities to write about something that's important to you a community that's important to you? That's a classic question at Stanford. Yeah. So you can really bring out that motorsport community. MIT, yeah. They all, they all want to know that. Exactly, right. So you, you describe, like, what does this Chinese motorsport community look like? Because an admissions officer sitting in Boston has no idea. They can't even conceptualize that. So what are the demographics? How big is it? You know, do people gather together in some sort of, I don't know, restaurant and watch, the watch it on the big screens? Do they meet up and, like, you know, look at various, um, you know, models of cars, whatever? How does it work? So talk about, you know, those interactions inside an essay. That's the first point. Second point is academically. 
build the skills that relate to their interests. So things like mechanical engineering, you know, optimization, linear programming, these kind of things which, you know, um, go above and beyond sort of typical academics. Um, I know you and I enjoyed the Harvard linear programming course. Yeah, um, so, you know, yeah. so we could, for example, get you know, a student over in Shanghai working on something like that. That would mean that basically Harvard sees the kid has gone above and beyond academically in areas that relate to this passion of motorsports, that the narrative kind of makes sense. The other thing is, you know, um, you can share the story of how, say, over the summer, you know, you went to go watch some great motorsport, you know, event. Um, and that's a human interest kind of dynamic. Obviously, you don't get any big brownie points for turning up to a show, but... That, I mean, that, you have a lot of fun. Yeah, that, something. That, that sincerity is exciting. And then I think the last thing I would say is, um, you know, in the sort of, uh, you know, school community, you can create something like a motorsports fanatics club where you bring in, you know, professional motorsports races, you know, the one guy in Shanghai that broke into the US circle or whatever, and get them to share their experiences. That shows great entrepreneurship, bringing in speakers, arranging a club, recruiting members, you know, all of the same themes that kind of an entrepreneur would have, but within this domain. So that's a very good example of how simple interests like motorsports could turn into a big theme that is totally unique, um, you know, in one of these really competitive high schools in China. So to go back to kind of the original question of are they focused on the right things, why does something like that stand out so much to colleges, right? Because, you know, it takes a lot of effort to be good at mo- to really get into motorsports, to really make a club of your school. But it also takes a lot of effort to study for the SAT, to get good grades in your school. Things that, to be honest, are kind of commodified. Like everyone has them. And how do colleges really sort through those kind of efforts? And do you think they're over-rewarding or under-rewarding efforts like the ones you talked about are just very focused, very much kind of creating your own system versus kids who, you know, might excel in the system? Okay, so the first thing that I would say is for many of the students listening, they're thinking about the SAT and they're a bit nervous because frankly, they know they've got to get a good score, but their test scores are currently a little bit below where they want to be. The first thing I'd say is, you know, academics are not commodified because, you know, to get into many of the top schools, um, you know, like you basically, you've got to have those good grades. That's kind of table stakes, so to speak. You've got to start with that. So for most schools, good academics can get you there. But for schools like the Stanfords, the UCLA's, the NYU's, the Yale's, these are the schools where you've got to go above and beyond with that X factor to really stand out. You've got to have the academics and more. So I would say, um, you know, uh, it's simply a prioritization game. When you don't have enough time, I guess, to focus on anything but academics, you've got to get your academics to a certain level. But once you're confident they're going to be at that level, or they will be soon, you should then allocate time elsewhere. I think the other thing is, you know, it's simply about balance as well. You can't just go hard on academics all day. You've got to have interest in other areas. Now, um, you know, uh, I would say, you know, a very concrete example of this um, as to why I think this is actually quite logical is you think about a great entrepreneur, right? Um, Think about somebody like Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs wasn't the smartest academic guy, but he was very good at storytelling. He had a lot of ambition, persistence, and tenacity. When he hops up on stage and you know, talks about the new iPad or the new iPhone or whatever he's launching, that, that ability to kind of you know, bring people behind him on the mission is one of the most powerful drivers of Apple's brand. You know, if a kid in China, when they're 16, can create a, a city-wide motorsports movement, that shows real hustle. And that's a real transferable skill to leadership and entrepreneurship. So I think basically the colleges aren't optimizing for sort of who can best crush the test. They're optimizing for who can, you know, succeed in the game of life. And I think um, that's where the holistic nature of the process actually makes a lot of sense. Cool. I, I mean, I definitely agree with that. There's definitely a big part of my application that was saying, you know, the soft skills. I'm a leader. I'm a good communicator. And I have things that go beyond just having the scores because, frankly, my scores were great, but they weren't tip top. They weren't 
going to get me in on their own. And I think one thing for people listening is to know where your strengths are. If that's something that you know about yourself, you really need to get that across to colleges. If you want to get across, however, those soft factors, you want to show you're a good leader, you're a good communicator, you're someone that your peers like, um, you've really got that charisma, things that are going to allow them to become a successful entrepreneur, be successful in the game of life, as you said. I want to go back to how you signpost that in the application. Is that something that can just come in, in essays, or do you do that in letters of rec? Do you do that potentially in your supplements? Is there any way to do that on the Common App? Talk a little bit more about how you're going to indicate to colleges that you have those skills um, and make sure that they understand, you know, you're good at the game of life without you being annoying and saying, look, I'm a great leader or doing so very directly. So I think the key thing I would say here is authenticity, authenticity, authenticity. You have so many kids going to these schools preaching how they love environmental science without having done anything in that area, right? For an application, everything's got to make sense. It's like if you meet a friend, the friends you really love are those that are authentic. They, you know, they're, they're always the same with you. You know, you know their background. You know they're not, you know, being sort of um, manipulative. They're sharing how they are. Colleges want the same thing. They want to see, see the, the real person. So what you need to achieve basically is your references, your essays, your activities, you know, your interview with the alumni. All these things must triangulate to be the same narrative. It's very weird if, you know, your essay says one thing is your passion, but then the references don't even talk about that passion. The more overlapping these different things are, the more that consistent story is being shared. You know, recently one of my students gone to Stanford um, from the, the Bay Area, from one of the most competitive schools um, in Silicon Valley. And she had a passion for environmental science. Now, she had a consistent narrative that she had built. The, the teacher recommendations talked about how, the, how she impacted the school's attitude towards environmental you know, progress. She had research professors from university talking about how at a young age she'd been doing college research in environmental science. She had written essays submitted to the New York Times around environmental science. You know, there was a really overarching theme. So I'd say think about authenticity. The more, you know, things point towards that one central star, the more compelling that will be in, as a point of differentiation. One more thing I want to mention, David. You mentioned earlier about the idea of, you know, how um, you know, your edge wasn't academics, right? Um, in terms of just being only academic. You were very academic, but you were trying to paint a broader, a broader you know, narrative. Now, I would actually argue that it's actually virtually impossible to get in being the all-academic person. Yes, there's some guy somewhere in China who cranked Math Olympiads since they were four or five. This is no exaggeration. This does happen. And basically gets in, they're a gold medalist, and then they win the sort of gauntlet of math. Yeah, or they're the physics champion, great at yeah. English. You have those people around the world, right? Those kind of academic all-stars. It comes easy. They don't need to expend too much effort. But because they don't need to expend effort on regular school, they take all the online classes. Yeah, there totally. are those kind of applicants. Now, these applicants, that's not what you usually want to shoot for, if you're thinking about this strategically, because that's not a smart statistical game. Most people can't win the math Olympiad. So what you have to do is really think about you know, your allocation of time, kind of like a portfolio, right? Go hard on academics, but make sure you aren't over-investing activities that you can't basically, you know, dominate in. Spread it out a little bit. Here's a really concrete example for you. When I was at Harvard, I loved debating in New Zealand. I was a good debater. I was in the regional team. I, I competed in nationals, won a bunch of tournaments. I got to Harvard, turned up, you know, as a yuppie freshman excited to, you know, try out the clubs. I joined the debate team. Now, in the very first tournament, it was the Boston Novice Tournament back in 2013, and I actually got third in the tournament. And I was like, wow, this is great. But there was a problem. First and second were both Harvard guys from the same team I was in. There was one guy called Bo. He was the top debater in the world back in high school. The second guy was Finale. He was literally ranked second in the world in high school. So I thought to myself sitting here and I'm like, 
You know, I back myself, but can I beat these guys who literally were the first and second best in the world in debating? Am I going to come out every single weekend and keep losing to these guys? And, and debating takes a lot of time. Basically, it's every single weekend. So was I going to write off my re- weekends for the next three years to sort of not be the best in this area? No. So it was a passion I had for seven years, to be honest, and I still love debating. But I dropped it like it's hot, got out of there, and jumped straight into finance. Um, and, you know, that became kind of an area of competitive advantage I had on campus. Now... That might sound really bad. I dropped my passion, right? But the reality is I expressed that passion through many other ways. In stock investing, you've got to use debating skills. You know, in club leadership, you use debating skills. In class, you use debating skills. So I didn't lose those skills, but I didn't go and sink 100 hours into this kind of silly activity. So I would implore you to be strategic in high school about how you spend your time. Great. I completely agree. Um, I think that's one of the hardest things to do, to take something you're really passionate about, not make it the thesis of your application, or conversely, Sometimes you have to talk up something that you're really good at that you don't feel that passionate about. It's kind of the secret sauce of admissions is that you need to really make clear as much as authenticity is important. When you're thinking about where you're going to spend your time, think about what you're really good at. Think about ways to make it work for you. If you're passionate about math, but you don't want to do pure math as I did, find applications, find statistics, find computer science, find the branch of math that really appeals to you, right? And is that another way to maybe you know, balances two things you said about being authentic, but also making sure you're only spending time on the things that are really good to you. You're totally. really good at, sorry. That, and, and that's a really good example around math. You know, you and I at Harvard, we had the same experience, right? We could have tried to do pure math and, and totally... Failed laughable. Yeah, just, you know, it would have been tough. So we did some pure math and that was fun, but we found our competitive edge in applied math and economics, you know, and stats, this kind of area. We had a blast doing those courses and coming out of the degree, we, we, had a, we had a stronger kind of relative advantage in those areas. So I think, you know, half the game's hard work, but definitely half the game is strategic time focus. In fact, maybe even more of it is strategic time focus once you get the kind of basic academic skills in place. That time allocation is just crucial. So we've talked a lot about how to prepare for an application, what makes a good application. Again, it's authenticity. It's having being well-rounded, but also having focuses. We call it sometimes well-lopsided. Having a really clear story, making sure that colleges read your application and immediately know this is the kid who ABC. This kid at my university would do ABC. Clarity of thought, clarity of story, really important. We've covered all of that. What I want to ask you is, is that fair? Is that right? Like, are colleges really looking at the right things? There are colleges, for example, who are thinking about not taking the SAT at all. Chicago, Smith. Do you think that's right? Do you think that we're, we should be moving more towards these soft factors? Or do you think they're kind of overrepresented? So the first thing is, I think that the reason why the SAT is getting dropped from schools is not because schools don't value it. I think it's more because there's a lot of evidence which shows the SAT test is quite inequitable and that people from you know, more affluent backgrounds tend to do better in the test. So I think colleges are dropping it for an access reason, not because it's not valuable to them. I think in reality, like it's almost impossible to get into a good school without a really good SAT or ACT score um, from more competitive pools. So um, I would say that colleges still put a ton of focus on academics. Um, you know, For example, there are some countries that I counsel kids in where Harvard has only taken people that were ranked top of their school for the last four years consecutively. So Nobody who wasn't ranked first got in in certain countries. Um, academics is super important, and you know that's just the nuts and bolts of it. What I would say is the interesting comparisons between the U.S. and the U.K. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. U.K., very academic-focused. Yeah, exactly. Very much about the numbers, how you do in school, not worried about things that maybe they derisively call fluffy. So kind of <laughs> how do you compare those systems? Yep. How do you think about it? 
And for those people out there, how do you know if you're a good fit for the U.S. versus the U.K. system? So my quick take is I think that the U.S. application process is actually pretty phenomenal because I think in life you need you need your academic skills. They're like your core competencies. You need your leadership, right, driving people forward. You need your ability to tell stories through the essays. You've got to have your activities, the extracurriculars. I think that the proxies the U.S. application process uses are actually very translatable to sort of broader things in, in life. That's why I think there's a lot of kids that come out of undergraduate colleges in the US very well rounded and equipped to take on leadership early in their career. Now, moving to the UK, I think the UK's focus on sort of exclusively academics is, you know, for the reason I like the US, why I don't really love the UK so much in their process. I think the UK looks very narrowly at academics. It doesn't really take into consideration things like outside of school self-study. So if you've, for example, gone ahead and competed in like the Math Olympiad, they're not going to put as much weight on that as, you know, just like your core school grades. I think that's a failing of the system. Um, and so generally speaking, I would say I like the U.S.'s holistic process. It requires tons of resources. You need to have well-trained admissions officers. You need to have a lot of, you know, um, careful readers. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think it's, it's definitely a lot more relevant for future career success than just the purely academic U.K. system. Um, Actually, pushing this even further, in New Zealand and Australia, the only way in which you get into university is just pure academics based on a point system. There's no notion of your personality. There's no essays. It's very objective based on grades. And I think, um, you know, that is not a very nice system in the sense that you've got no real incentive as a high school student to think about, you know, what are your strengths? You know, what is your personality like? Who are you as a person? It can often lead to a lot of dissatisfaction because you roll into whatever degree has the highest points. It's the most competitive you got into. And that's kind of what your career is in. And I think there isn't that opportunity for kind of alignment of interest that the U.S. process almost forces out of you when you're writing those application essays. So short answer is I'm pretty bullish in the U.S. system. And I guess I'm, you know, I did turn up here after all. Um, you know, so I, uh, I may have a bit of a bias in that regard. As we both know, born and raised myself. Um, <laughs> so I actually have a question for you. So you said something that I thought was interesting about the SAT. Schools are dropping the SAT because access is somewhat biased, and certainly there have been studies that show that, you know, the SAT, for example, uses quotes, especially in the writing sections or examples in the math sections that cater to people from certain backgrounds, cater to people who are more affluent, as you said, cater to people that come from the background of the people writing the tests, which tend to be kind of white America, for example. Um, and so... Kind of taking that step back, I actually wanted to ask you in light of the recent Harvard court case um, brought by Asian Americans against the school about what they allege is systemic bias in admissions results. And I wanted to ask you, you talk about how it's really important to have a really systematic overview of someone. You think you want to incorporate the soft skills and essentially the people that deserve admissions into these top schools or the people that should be admitted are the those who are going to do the most with the experience. Is that fair to say? Um, yeah, I think it's fair to say. So if that's true, then I want to ask... I think what, I'm, getting, I'm getting led into like a logic trap here. Yeah, keep going, keep going. Well, <laughs> so what, I, what I'm saying is that kind of in the same way that the SAT might be a little biased, do you worry that sometimes some of these things like leadership may as well be biased or you kind of see the other side of the argument where people might say, okay, well, access to leadership positions, access to this is really governed by this. And so people who are succeeding in their communities... Um, pe sorry, people from different backgrounds might only have the opportunity to succeed on the test or really succeed within the framework of the school because getting outside the system requires a connection here or a um, step up here that is really harder from people who come from, you know, those non-maybe um, favored backgrounds. So I'm just curious what you think of that. 
um, and how Got that it. kind of might tie into what you're talking about before. Okay, so I guess to summarize uh, what I think you're asking, basically what you're wondering is, you know, in the same way that I love leadership and extracurriculars, and I was previously sort of thinking about the SAT as a, as a driver of inequity, could extracurriculars and leadership also cause inequity too? Because access to... Or originate clubs, from inequity. Yeah, interesting. Um, I think there's definitely a risk of this, to be honest. I think that it's very clear that the best schools in the world, take Phillips Exeter, Phillips Andover, Lawrenceville, you know, etc. These schools have way more leadership opportunities, way more extracurriculars. There's a whole co- campus culture built around leadership that doesn't exist in many schools. So I think it's very fair to say that in some environments, it is there's there's non-existent clubs. You know, there's very li- limited things to do. The flip side of that is, you know, I think while we can sit there as kind of social critics and you know criticize the system, the fear I have for the listeners is these guys are 15, 16, 17. They're applying to college. The system's not going to change in the next two or three years, right? They need to worry about themselves and how to do best in the system and take over that kind of personal agency. So my mentality is very simple: if you're at a school that doesn't have extracurriculars or leadership. View that as actually an advantage. Why? Because when you create them all, you're going to stand out so much, right? When You'll you look more different. When you create the clubs, when you you know go for leadership, when your when your teachers say, "Hey, look, in my camp, in my school, there is no there there was there was no activities for Johnny to take, but Johnny, man, he created three different clubs that are going to be here for a long time. That's very powerful. So I've actually seen, to be honest, in admissions, a pretty consistent trend whereby students that come from you know niche schools, you know, in foreign parts of the world let's say New Zealand, from a school that's never seen anybody overseas, has actually done very well in the process by, you know, um, kind of building things in their school that didn't previously exist. So I would say, yes, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I do think extracurriculars um, are a source of inequity in the admissions process. But I think, you know, they're also, they also give you a good opportunity to easily differentiate yourself. If you're at Phillips Exeter Academy, you know, there's a Model UN club, there's a debate club, there's a, there's a speech and drama club. Everything you want to do, there's a club for it. Um, that's a tougher environment to innovate in, potentially, you could argue, for some students. So, I mean, I'd say there's pros and cons, but the reality is, how are you, you as a listener, going to get yourself into college? Um, so you've got to deal with those realities. Yeah, and I think that's very true. I think one thing I definitely want to add there is that colleges will always look at you in the framework of what opportunities you come from. I, very good point. Very good point. As you know, like I spent a lot of time in New York talking to people there, and a valid concern is that in New York you're going to be judged differently than you're going to be judged if you come from suburban Arkansas or even if you come from Russia or New Zealand or other parts of the world that you know aren't New York with all of its bustling opportunities. And yes, if you come from there, the opportunity burden is going to be higher. There are way more things to do. There are way more opportunities. And either if your parents may know someone, many more things to do. And so from that perspective, the schools are much better, et cetera. It is somewhat unfair. It is somewhat unfair that you're going to be judged against your cohort. And if you are someone who's maybe similarly talented in different parts of the world, you're going to have a different opportunity to stand out. And colleges do have to sort through that. um, And that's hard. But one thing I wanted to ask you is, Obviously, both of us have worked with students who are applying, and mentally we have to make our judgments of their applications. What do you think, if you could redo the system, and you were making your own college, and you had to pick out, what would I emphasize? Would you do what the U.S. broadly has, or would you even add more things in favor of leadership? What kind of would you ask students to submit that might give them, might give you what you need to know to decide if you wanted them to go to your hypothetical beaten university. <laughs> Don't get me too excited. So I, I think the first thing, uh, David, I would say is for the New York kids out there, I would say maybe you think you have it hard, but wait to you know go to Shanghai or Seoul, right? My I was in Korea two weekends ago, 
And in 24 hours, I met more students with a 1500 ACT score or higher than I would see in the US in like, you know, two weeks, right? So, I mean, uh, there's always relative difficulty. Now, if you're literally telling me you're a math student in Shanghai, fine. Okay, I agree. You've got it pretty difficult. But anyway, going back to your question. So your question essentially is, how would I redesign admissions? So I think the US has tweaked and tweaked and tweaked over many years, and a lot of what they do is quite good. But here's what I would say. I would strike affirmative action, and I would have affirmative action uh, based not on race, but based on socioeconomic status. I think that basically, you know, I, I totally agree that, you know, inequitable access to opportunities is really damaging because college is one of the most powerful forces to drive social uh, mobility. So you've got to make sure that's accessible. But I think the problem with affirmative action is... You know, the reality is it means literally based on your, your, your ethnicity, your outcome changes. And that, I think, is unpalatable to many, justifiably. I think if you instead look at income and you say, look, you know, you could be a white American or you could be an African American or you could be a, you know, Hispanic American um, with a low income. And you could be a Kiwi American. Yeah, a Kiwi American. Yeah. Thank my you. God. Um, my God. Yeah, think, what is the word coming to? So basically, <laughs> you, you know, you, you could have that with a low income and then you could be viewed through the lens of that low income and the opportunities that restricted you for. I think income is far more of a pervasive driver of inequity than, than race because, you know, if you don't have the income, how can you go for summer programs? You know, how can you, you know, get the tutors? How can you get um, access to, the, you know, different, you know, quality private schools, right? That's a huge driver of, you know, academic disadvantage. So I'd much rather the schools hone in on that. That's an objective success metric. Now, critics would say you can, you know, kind of obfuscate your, you know, your income. Um, but what I would say to that is, you know, typically the people that game the income system, um, like, uh, yeah, that's a pretty small percentage of cases. And usually, you know, higher income people tend to be willing to just pay the full fees. So I think that while that's a risk that, you know, there is some ability to game the income measures, um, net, net, I like it better than saying, hey, you know, you're Chinese, so it's harder for you to get into Harvard than this guy who's, you know, Hispanic. Do you think that's where colleges are going? Um, I, the movement about this, obviously, for years in the U.S., colleges like Harvard claim to really incorporate this, as does Williams and Amherst as well. And they're, you know, colleges who talk about this or colleges who stay silent on it. It's like a pretty charged topic here, especially with how it's going in the U.S. So I'm just curious where you kind of see it going. Do you think that'll eventually be how colleges move? And a question for you. You work with people internationally. Is there any movement towards this? Are those conversations happening outside the U.S.? And why or why not do you think that's happening? So uh, the first thing that I would say is in this realm, the colleges have just immense power. Um, I think, you know, uh, if Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, etc., you know, do or don't want to change these policies, that's ultimately going to be the, the big deciding factor. So I think, you know, yes, people in China, Korea, etc., you know, I mean, naturally, they're not very happy that it's harder for them to get in, you know, based on their passport. But they've also held that view for a long period of time. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, the decision maker are these private institutions that, you know, basically have the right to sort of uh, do what they want to do based on, I think, some of the Supreme Court decisions and previous uh, cases in Texas and stuff. So I think basically, yes, you know, internationally, people don't like this. Um, there was a big surge in sort of uh, attention on it during the time of the Harvard case. It's since died down quite considerably. I think basically people are pretty willing to accept the system. The other thing that I would say is, you know, I mean, I, I'm now at Oxford um, and I see, you know, Oxford's environment um, and, I, and I was at Harvard and Harvard basically there is a huge distinction in level of diversity, right? Yeah. Oxford has no affirmative action. There's actually limited financial aid for international students. There's a huge population of, you know, essentially white or Asian people at Oxford. 
there's very few people from you know uh, sort of a African background of any, of any kind, um, and there's been quite a lot of negative coverage about Oxford Cambridge on this basis. On the flip side, you know, I really do think like being at Harvard, it's like a rainbow. You have every color of the universe, every yeah. corner of the world represented. It's quite beautiful. So, I mean, I would say there can be marginal improvements made, but I would say that the status quo in the U.S. is definitely the best, the best of floor options I've seen worldwide. Great. So, thank you, Jamie. We're running out of time. Um, so, again, really thank you for joining. Um, excellent podcast. For those of you listening, again, just to wrap up, the three things um, that I'd really take away, and Jamie, feel free to add to these, are when you're writing an application, you need a clear story and you need an authenticity. You need, sorry, you need authenticity. You can think of your college application in many ways like a chapter of a book. Your ComNet first, then your essays behind that, your supplements behind that, your letters of rec, and then anything that you might get as a supplement. So as Jamie said, he had people submit supplementary letters of rec who worked with him on his um, anti-alcohol and anti-drug campaigns. I had people that I worked with on environmental policy submit things. Again, things that really bring you out as a person. But anyway, I'm getting a little distracted. So... That, those 20 pages are, are a story. They're a chapter that someone's going to read. They're going to flip through it in four minutes. And like when you read a chapter for school, you want those key takeaways that are going to be asked about on the quiz. You want them to have a very simple understanding of this is Jamie. Jamie does X, Y, and Z. The second takeaway that we talked about was if you're really trying to do that starting early, Jamie gave the example of a student you worked with in China who started doing motocross from an early age, someone who worked to bring it out in their schools, someone who worked to create a club, really create passion projects, really make clear through every part of their application, the essay, the leadership section, maybe a supplementary letter of rec, um, that that was something they were passionate about, something they'd accomplished with. And not only does that show you have passions, but it shows what you do with your passions. And as Jamie had talked about, those are the kind of students that, especially in the American system, are highly rewarded. The last thing we talked about was ultimately our views on the education system and the application system. And what we agreed on was the U.S. application system really considers the right things. It really looks at you holistically, and as hard as that can be, depending on where you come from, you really need to focus on catering to that. One of the things that Jamie really elaborated on was that the U.S. system will reward kids who go above and beyond depending on their environment. So while you might feel as though your environment's very competitive, your environment's less competitive, and thus... Um, contains less opportunities, you're really only judged against the people around you. And that's what you need to focus on. As unjust or just as you might think that is, that is the reality, as you pointed out. And that's not something that you can go around. So again, Jamie, we're going to wrap up here. But any last words? Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, fantastic stuff. That was a very useful summary. The last thing that I would just add is that, you know, you have to be ruthlessly efficient with your strategy for time allocation. I gave you the example of how I dropped debating, a passion of mine for basically all my high school years, within a matter of a week after realizing that in this new environment it wasn't going to cut it for me. Now, um, the more decisive you can be with these kind of decisions, the better you will be not only in high school in allocating your time, but in the you know amazing world of life as you go into your career, which is a far more ambiguous kind of thing than you know any high school process. So, um, thanks, David. I think they were very fantastic, insightful questions, and I look forward to the next one. Thanks, See you Jay. later, guys. Have a good one. Bye. Subscribe. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Crimson Education Podcast. Do you have questions, concerns, or recommendations? Email us at podcast at crimsoneducation.org and we'll get right back to you. 
And if you want to stop waiting and start forging the path to the school of your dreams, visit crimsoneducation.org to get a free education assessment with one of our academic experts. Crimson Education. Reimagine what's possible.